If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. If you do not have a Bible this morning, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you. It's a black Bible. It's page number 5, Genesis chapter 6. Well, last week, we looked at chapter 5, Genesis chapter 5. And what we found in Genesis chapter 5 was a genealogy of Adam's descendants from Adam all the way down to Noah. In some ways, the chapter um, is kind of depressing as it is, bit of, as it is a bit of an, an ancient obituary. We read this, this phrase over and over again throughout the chapter, and he died, and he died, and he died, which stressed over and over again to us the reality of our own mortality. But even in the midst of the death that we saw in that chapter, we also saw light. We also saw hope in places like Seth, in places like Enoch, and in places like Noah. Well, if last week felt heavy to you, uh, today's passage, as you already heard read, is a painful description of the wickedness of humanity in the days of Noah. But again, in the darkness, there is still light. Behind the dark clouds, the sun is always shining. There is hope and there is grace. Moses is the writer of Genesis. And he has connected in chapter 5 the line of Seth to Noah. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, then provide a conclusion to the genealogy and a prologue or an introduction to what we know of as the flood narrative, which many of these verses we skip over to get to the flood. Uh, but in order to get there, we're closing out chapter 5, so to speak, and opening chapter 6 with these first eight verses. And here we will see why the long lifespans of chapter 5 ended, as well as the rationale for the flood, for the judgment of the flood. This all begins in verse 1. Follow along again in verse 1. It says this, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Back in chapter 1, after God created Adam and Eve, he commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply. What we have seen since is obedience to that command. And in chapter 5, we see clearly that they took that seriously, and we see the population expanding quite rapidly, an expanse of the population. But as humanity grew, what we also find is that wickedness grew. Verse 2 is an often debated passage. The sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any as they chose. Now there's some, some questions about who are the sons of God. And you can read any number of commentaries that come to differing conclusions on the matter. Um, I will not solve 
the, the debate uh, of who are the sons of God with you this morning, nor am I going to go into the debate entirely this morning. I would advise and just give a word of caution about debated passages in the Bible. Uh, it is easy for us to get fixated on what we cannot understand, to get fixated on what is uncertain instead of what is certain. If you come to something that's uncertain in the Bible, the best way to try to understand that is with something that is certain in the Bible. Okay? Yet there are passages like this that remain debated. There are arguments for, for all of the views, but we ought not to miss in the uncertainty the point of the texts. And so my objective today is not to answer everybody's questions about what is happening in chapter six. That's not my, I'm not attempting to do that and I will not do that, so sorry. But what, what I do hope to do is to help us see the main point. What is Moses doing? What is he saying? Why is he saying these things? What is he getting at? Now there are two main interpretations of what the sons of God who the sons of God are. Some believe they are the, the line of Seth. The sons of God are the line of Seth and the daughters of men are the line of Cain. Others believe that the, the sons of God are fallen angels and that these fallen angels inhabited men that then had children with these daughters of men. There are pros and cons to each view uh, related to the immediate context of, the, te of, of the, the verses, as well as the terminology which is used in other parts of the Bible. So for instance, in, 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 in brief here, the context, we have just gotten done two genealogies, the genealogy of Cain and the genealogy of Seth, chapter four and chapter five. So coming into chapter six, there is a logical conclusion that what Moses is doing is he's talking about the sons of God as these two lines. The sons of God is the line of Seth and the daughters of men as the line of Cain. On the opposite side of the, the argument, there is that these are fallen angels who have inhabited or commandeered bodies of men. One of the points of argument there is that the term sons of God is referred to as angels in places like Job chapter one, chapter two, and chapter 30. Eight, that is a common usage of angels. Warren Wearsby notes that those are not fallen angels in Job chapter 1, 2, and 38, but they are angels nonetheless. Now, not that that's an unimportant matter because it has been debated for many centuries and will continue to be. And when I say they disagree, I mean good people disagree. I mean people in our camp uh, people that you would know their names say the exact opposite things on this matter. So it is, it is far from concluded on, on who and what this was happening here exactly. But not that it's unimportant, but um, we don't want to get caught up in the debate because if we get caught up in the debate too far, we're going to miss the text. We're going to get so caught up in what these, who these people were that we miss out on what Moses is saying. Moses was describing for us the degeneration of humanity. That's what's being described here. Whether it was through uh, demonization or through sinful flesh, he's describing how humanity is descending and 
how does he describe this? How does he show, or what does he show as the degradation? The compromise of marriage. That's how he shows it. That's the immorality that he, he points out. That here are these men taking women in whichever interpretation you want to choose of those two groups, whichever it is, it's a compromise of what God has designed. It's a mixed marriage in an un, uh, unsanctioned way. Here, the sons of God took the daughters of men as wives. And it says, any as they chose, which may suggest polygamy here. More to the point, though, of the, the descent of humanity, turn your Bible back to chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6, we, we have the woman, or who we come to know as Eve. And in verse 6, it says this. So when the woman saw, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to her eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. Now look back at verse 2, chapter 6. And the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took their wives any as they chose. What's Moses showing to us? He's showing to us a repeat of the rebellion in the garden. The word attractive there can be translated good. It's the same Hebrew word. It's, it's the same thing. It happened again. And when we looked at chapter 3, we saw how that happens again in the New Testament. It happened to, it was an attempted to happen to, to Jesus. That's how Satan tried to tempt Jesus. It's the same temptations that 1 John chapter 2 warns us about as well. This delight of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. No matter how one interprets the sons of God, these were clearly mixed marriages, whether it was Seth's line or demon-possessed men. Moses says here that they took the daughters, which may also include or indicate a, a force, a, a taking against, against their will, possibly, a possible sexual perversion, although Considering the customs of the day, fathers were, would, would have given their daughters away. So if that were the case, then now we have fathers who are implicated in the demise of marriage here in chapter 6. Any way you cut it, what we're seeing is humanity unraveling, and we're seeing it in the institution of marriage. It is not some Republican talking point to speak of the war on marriage. It is not. It has been used as a political talking point, but it is not a political talking point from the Bible's perspective. Traditional or biblical marriage has been um, at odds with the world for a very long time. It is a spiritual battle, and it's been going on since the beginning. Marriage, the Bible tells us, is between one man and one woman for life. That is God's design. And it's that way because God designed it that way in Genesis 2 and because according to Ephesians chapter 5, it images Christ and the church. That's God's design. So what, what, does, what does the evil one want to do but to disrupt God's design? And we see it here in the compromise of marriage and we see it today in the compromise of marriage. 
Moses was communicating the wickedness of the culture of man. That's the point. Don't miss the point. Uh, the temptation to compromise on marriage, on compromise on obeying God is still present today. The Bible warns us all throughout the New Testament about this temptation. James chapter 4, verse 4, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 70, to, to, to not love the world, but rather to do God's will. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through chapter 7, verse 1, of what fellowship does light have with darkness, or righteousness with unrighteousness, or Christ with Belial, that is Satan. Though we are not living in the pre-flood area, some things are still the same, aren't they? Matthew chapter 24, Jesus was speaking about his second coming, and he says this, chapter 24, verses 36 and following, but concerning that day, the day of the second coming, uh, the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as the days of Noah, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept over them. And the last phrase, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What do they say about history? If you don't learn from history, you're destined to repeat it. In response to the rebellion of, men, of man, the Lord speaks in verse 3. Pick it up there. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 100 years. Now, it might be surprising to, to know that this also is a debated passage. What does the 120 years mean? There are two particular ideas here. One is that the 120 years means that that's how long the lifespan is going to be. Now, whether or not you believe that that's what Moses is talking about, clearly that is what happens. Post-flood, almost no one lived past 120 years, Abraham being an exception to that. So whether or not Moses meant that here, that became the reality, that something changed in the flood and therefore, the lifespan of man did not exceed 120 years. We don't have anybody living 900 years anymore. And they were not sometime after the flood. That's one way of understanding the passage. The second is that, that, that God said that my spirit shall not abide in man forever. Judgment is coming. In 120 years, judgment is coming. There's 120 years left of the days of these people on earth before judgment comes. It is God's spirit that sustains and gives life. And he's saying, my spirit will not contend. It will not stride uh, with or abide in man forever. In 120 years, it's over. Judgment is coming. Well, let's move on to verse four. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. 
Now, the Nephilim uh, also can be translated giants. And we see this again in Numbers chapter 13. That's true. This word also can be referred to as fallen ones or tyrants. Uh, these are not the offsprings of the union in, chapter, in verses 1 and 2. And the reason that we would believe that they're not is because verse 4 says that they were there when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and were born uh, and they bore children to them. They were already there is the implication there. But the interpretation of saying that the fallen ones or tyrants can go along with what we read in the following verses later in the text. Look at verses 11 and 12. Moses writes this. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And the Lord saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt and all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. This idea of tyrants or or fallen ones goes along with the idea of violence here that Moses adds in verses 13, excuse me, 11 and 12. But verse four is describing, again, human wickedness, now including this sense of violence. Warren Wearsby says that God saw these people as fallen ones, that's the Nephilim, while men saw these people as mighty men or mighty leaders, He writes, what is admired by the world is rejected by God. Still true today. Well, verse 5 continues with an intense statement about mankind's condition. Listen to verse 5. Follow along. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil Continually. That is quite a statement, isn't it? The wickedness of man was great. Now, sometimes we use that word as an adjective for anything. How was your day? It was great. Uh, how was school today? It was great. How was your birthday? It was great. Right? We use it casually. But the word great here means abounding. It means abundant. It means extensive. What Moses is trying to describe is that the whole of humanity was considered wicked. This wickedness was not an isolated incident. It wasn't just a a certain group of people. It wasn't a temporary condition. It was a societal reality. Verse 5 says, and the Lord saw. The Lord saw. We We read it already in verse 12. And God saw. This reminds us of chapter 1, when we saw that, we saw, we read that same three-word repetition in the days of creation, that God saw the day, and it was good. Chapter 1, verse 31 says, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And now five chapters later, Oh, how things have changed when we read, now every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention or every forming of the thoughts of his heart. One commentator says it means even the reflections of fantasy, the rising free-forming movements of the will were only evil continually. What we're seeing is there's, there's no resistance to sin here. 
No hesitation to partake. No repentance of sin. This, this is human depravity on display. They were, as one commentator, David Derek Kidner, writes, they were beyond self-help. This was a desperate situation that Noah is describing. It's the result of sin. James chapter 1, verse 15 says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What we are seeing in Genesis chapter 6 is sin fully grown. Rejection of God. This is a brutal description of humanity. Things clearly were not good. But... What can we say for ourselves? How would we describe our civilization today? How would one describe us? Is our society today better than Noah's? Or is it worse? Now, maybe it's not as bad. Maybe we wouldn't say every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Surely we, we, we ought not to be able to say that. And yet Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 3, seem to describe for us, not seem to, does describe for us the reality of unrighteousness that exists in the human heart apart from Christ. And apart from Christ, the human heart is descending, is separating itself farther and farther from God, as we see here in the book of Genesis. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us that all have sinned. Earlier in chapter 3, we read these words, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned away. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. All the way, all the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a description of humanity apart from Christ's. So yeah, apart from Christ, we're not actually any better off than Genesis chapter 6. Spiritually speaking today, apart from Christ, we too are in a desperate condition. And as God looks at this condition in chapter 6, God saw the wickedness, he was sorrowful, and he promised judgment. Look at verses 6 and 7. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. And, God, and the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man, from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. For I am sorry that I have made them. Moses said that God regretted. He was grieved. He was sorry. Now some of your Bibles say that God repented, which means to repent means to, to be sorry or, or to regret, as some other Bibles say. But when we think about the word repenting, um, we get an, a different idea. Um, 
we think about something that we have done wrong, therefore we need to repent for doing it. That's how we use the word repenting. But, but God does not do anything wrong. And so if, if your Bible uses the word repent, we need to make sure that we understand that in no way, shape, or form are the, the authors of the Bible suggesting in any way that God has done something wrong for which he needs to repent of. So in this sense, repent probably is not the most helpful word here. Uh, regret may be better, but it also needs some explanation. God's regret was not because he was caught off guard by their sin. Like, oh, I regret doing that now that I see the consequences. No, he was not caught off guard. He was not surprised. He was not unaware. Nevertheless, sin is lamentable. Sin is worthy of sorrow. Is what in, that's exactly what we see here in God's response. Additionally, the use of regret can lead us to conclude that God changed that God altered something, that he's changing. God does not change. God is, the, 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 the theological word here is immutable, which means he is unchanging. God cannot change his character. A.W. Pink writes, God cannot change for, for the better, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. God cannot and does not change. God is the I am. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, which author J.I. Packard calls this a declaration of God's eternal changelessness. Eternal changelessness. Far from repenting as we know it. What we see here in chapter 6 is, again, Packard here, a reversal of God's previous treatment of particular people consequent upon their reaction to that treatment. No change in eternal, his eternal purpose is implied when he begins to deal with a person in a new way. God does not change his character. He does not change who he is. But we do recognize that God regretted, that God was grieved. He was grieved by the sin of humanity. He was grieved by their wickedness, by their immorality, by their violence, by their evil intentions. Author Kent Hughes describes grief here as a mixture of rage and bitter anguish. What was once good, we saw in chapter 1, has now descended in something bad. Well, in response to man's condition, God's uh, divine judgment is announced in verse six, or verse 7. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creepy things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. I will blot out. Complete removal. This is erasure. This is no, there's no half measure in, in this judgment. It's all going. We may wonder at the extent of this judgment. That seems kind of for some of us, that might seem kind of rash. Total, complete removal. But remember, remember the point of the text. Remember what Moses is doing. It all goes back to chapter 3, verse 15. In chapter 3, verse 15, God says that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpents. What is Moses doing but tracing for us the seed of the woman? That's what's happening here. He's showing us how this promise of chapter 3, verse 15 would come to fruition. And yet, as this 
redemptive narrative is unfolding. We find out that the, the trajectory of humanity is in steep decline. Again, Ken Hughes says the race, that's the human race, was incapable of delivering such a seed, the promised seed, and thus it was only right that humanity be destroyed. That, that was the, the right response. The promise was a seed of the woman. The, the trajectory of, of humanity is not going to produce that seed. Therefore, what do we do? Right? What does God do? What does he say he's going to do? Is to blot out man whom he had created. That's the judgment. And yet, as great as that judgment was, so was the grace which we see in verse 8. Look at it in verse 8. Now Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Humanity is in a free fall. It's a race to the bottom. The destruction that is that is uh, been uh, announced, the, the coming destruction is complete. It, it's going to be um, entire, an entire destruction of humanity. And then we read verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Out of the darkness of the depraved civilization, God extends favor, uh, compassion to Noah. Why Noah? Why Noah? Remember the line at the end of chapter 5. Noah is in the line of Seth. He's in the line of the offspring. He is from whom Ultimately, the promised seed would come. That is Jesus. Noah found favor. He found grace. He found unmerited kindness, which means this. He found favor with God, not because he was good and righteous on his own. Someone does not receive grace because they deserve it. That's not grace. That's merit. It can't be grace if you deserve it. Grace only comes to those who are undeserving. And so here in verse 8, the favor, that's grace, that God gives to Noah cannot be because he is righteous. Even though, look at verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now you might read verse 9 by itself and, and conclude that Noah's a good guy. That's why God saved him. But you're reading it without reading verse 8. And verse 8 tells us that it was God's favor on Noah. His favor came first. Grace comes first. God moves first. Nobody seeks God on their own. We just read that in Romans chapter 3. Therefore, God moves. God extends favor to Noah. And then Noah responds. Salvation was and is always by grace through faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, we looked last week about at, at Enoch. And we also can see here Noah. And it says this, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. How did he display his faith? He obeyed God. Faith without works is dead. Yes, there's, there's works. We, we don't work in order to be saved. We work because we have been saved. The hope for humanity was not in Noah, 
but in God's grace. In God's grace towards Noah, which saved the human race and preserved the line of Seth, the promised seed. But our hope is still today, not in Noah, but in God's grace. Grace that has been made available to us through Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Noah was saved the same way you and I are saved, by faith, by believing God, by believing God's word, by believing God's promise, by acting in faith, by coming to God, by trusting him. What is the hope in the midst of God's judgment against human wickedness? What is the hope? It's that God would show us grace. Because guess what? Judgment is coming again. You're aware of that. Judgment is coming again. We don't like to talk about judgment. I understand that. No one likes to to talk about judgment. And if you're under the judgment of God, you really don't like to talk about judgment. And I understand that. But it is coming. And Noah was was a a preacher of righteousness and no one believed him. Eight people got on that boat. Him being one. Nobody believed him. And yet judgment came. Some things are true whether you believe them or not. The scriptures tell us judgment is coming. and What is our hope? It is grace. My question is, have you received that grace? Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says that he, God, saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of his spirit. Moses' hope was not in his righteousness, and our hope is not in our righteousness. Salvation comes from God in mercy and grace through Christ to those who would repent and believe. Repent and believe on Jesus. In just a few moments, we're going to take of the cup and of the bread. And as we come to this table, we see again this one. I'm not done yet. Don't put your Bible away, please. It's, it's like a dog whistling here. Whenever I say that, you all, you all think I'm done. I'm not done. I'll be done when I stop talking. Don't put your Bible away. As we come to the table this morning, we see this one. This one who demonstrated God's grace in his unmerited and unmeritable favor. His unmeritable kindness. By giving his body to be pierced and his blood being shed on the cross for our sins. That's what we see. We see again the grace. If you don't see it this morning, let's point it out very clearly to you. The the cracker is just a cracker. It's actually an oyster cracker. It's an oyster cracker. You can buy it at Walmart. There's nothing special about the oyster cracker. The, 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 The cracker represents bread. And what the bread is, is his body. His body that was pierced for our transgressions as he hung upon the tree. The cup, the cup is filled with juice. I don't know. Welch's grape juice, I don't, we probably get the value, great value, I don't know. You can buy that at Walmart too. What does it represent? It represents the blood of Jesus. There's nothing special about the elements in themselves. It's what they represent. They don't become anything. They become a cracker. They're dissolved into your body, right? They don't become anything. They represent something. And as we take of it, we remember his body 
and we remember his blood, if we remember the grace that God has bestowed upon us through his sacrifice. It's the grace that you and I need to be saved. Noah received grace. Jesus hadn't come yet. He didn't know that, but he knew about the promised seed. He knew about the promise, whatever that might have meant. He knew about that and he believed God. You and I, now, we don't look forward to the cross. We look back to the cross and we look forward to his coming again. We look back to the cross where we see grace, where we see the blood of Jesus pouring out and his body pierced for our sins. If you know this Jesus, if you have trusted him as your savior, if you've come to him by grace through faith, if you're trusting in him and him alone for your salvation, we invite you to participate by taking this bread and of this cup. But if you're here with us this morning and this is all new to you and you're not sure what in the world's going on, then just don't worry about these elements this morning. Don't, don't even worry about that. Hear this. Let, let, the, let the cups pass. Let, let the bread pass. Instead of receiving these elements, these symbols, the invitation actually is to receive Jesus. The invitation is actually not to receive a symbol of him, but to receive him. To recognize that he died for, for our sins. He died for your sins. And the Bible says, whosoever would believe may be saved. And if you have yet to believe, the invitation is to believe today and to find in him the hope in this life and in the next. This life can be kind of sketchy. If you don't have Christ, the next life is more sketchy. Hope in life and in death. The grace of God through his son. Our God.